Welcome to Gin and Tantra, Spirituality with a Twist, the podcast that takes Tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, Shamanism, Chinese medicineism, <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by and blends them into a tall, crisp, cool cocktail. Your spirit has been longing for. I want you to get together. Now, isn't that refreshing? I want you to get together. So I guess the next part is just as we, as we switch gears to talk about meditation specific, we thought we'd start with a little bit talking about Dr. Raiden's observations about meditation, and then we'll kind of like start grooving on our own stuff. Yeah. So one of the things that really struck me in interviewing him is that um, there definitely is probably uh, a way that he talks about how the mind works in meditation and how he sees it. The other thing that hit me was there's a different strokes for different folks kind of a thing, because yeah. not every meditation is right for every single person. Correct. Right. So those are the two things that really came up for me in the interview. Um, uh, one part was to me, you know, as a kind of a psych background person too, he definitely seems to have a little model of the psyche of a person and how they're working. So let me throw this out there and you can see if this like vibes with the way you read him too, Daniel. So to me, it seems like what he's saying is there's the kind of like cluttered superficial mind you can kind of experience that for yourself. Your mind, you sit down to meditate, your mind's doing all kinds of funky shit. Anyone who's meditated has had this experience, right? And you, you know, it gets better as you go along. So if you're just starting in this stuff, this stuff does get better. But in the beginning, it's like very annoying. <laughs> it's a pain in the ass. And the mind does a bunch of funky shit. Okay. Uh, then he's talking about an unconscious mind that can potentially block. And I thought that was really interesting psychologically that people outside of their own awareness might have psychological blocks, traumas, things that are also not the superficial activity of the mind, but deeper parts that are psychological factors that can become obstructions. And I think he was really speaking not only in meditation, but also in the kind of magic part, the ability of the mind to affect the external environment. These unconscious blocks can be there. And he does actually recommend psychotherapy and things like that, mm -hmm. right? And I couldn't help but think that, you know, we're acupuncturists and herbalists and so Chinese medical people. And like our work does that too. It tries to like get to those deeper underlying things and tries to like free them up. So, you know, he talks about the cluttered superficial layer, the unconscious part that might be there blocking too. And then what he says, when the mind kind of like gets deeper, you have this deeper unconscious part. You're part of the, the bigger little C that like connects out. And once you can tap into that deeper part of yourself, that's the part that will influence the external environment. So that looks to me like his theory. He never says that like all on one page, like all in a row, mm -hmm. but that's what I kind of like get him as saying, does that vibe with your way of thinking about him too? Yeah, I believe that's, I believe that's the, to the truth with him. Okay. Okay. So we're on the same page with that. I'm, I'm, how do you feel about it? Like, I'm okay with that. That doesn't sound like a crazy set of ideas to me. No, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, okay. I think it, I, I think it's, you know, I mean, I feel like if you've been meditating for any length of time, this has been your experience. And I've, you know, recommended meditation to, I mean, basically anybody and everybody, you know, I think everybody should do it. It's kind of like showering. I think that's kind of the analogy I use. It's like you shower every day, you meditate every day. 
Like that's just, it, it's what you do. There, there's, you know, like you move every day, hopefully, um, whether it's just walking or whatever, but you're going to move. You should meditate, even if it's for just a few minutes. And upon, you know, sitting in a chair or sitting on the floor or whatever, walking meditation, there is always a dusting off of the cobwebs, everybody. And, you know, even me now, and I'm not, definitely not no adept. I'm not a beginner, but I'm not, an, I'm not I'm definitely not some kind of crazy, you know, uh, person who can just drop into some deep state with the, you know, one breath. And based on the day, there may be more or less influences on my mind. How, you know, how much news did I watch? How much time did I sit in traffic? You know, did somebody say something to me or what, you know, whatever, like I'm not above being influenced, but for people who sit down initially to meditate, those voices, those influences are much, much uh, more potent than their ability to deal with them. And I think over time, I think those influences do decrease, but I think our ability to deal with them increases exponentially so that they seem like less of a problem. So the example I'd use is like for strength training, exercising. Maybe when you first start out, lifting five pounds is really, really heavy. And you're like, I can barely do a press with this five pounds. After a year and you can press a hundred pounds, that five pounds, you still have to move it, but you're not worried about it anymore. You know, it just becomes part of what you do to get warmed up. And so then these kind of, as we go through this and we talk about meditation, some of the beginner techniques that get sort of doled out to society as like the way that the, the path, the quote unquote path to ease your anxiety or cure your depression. It's like, no, this is the beginning of the beginning just to get you in the mindset to get ready to actually start. It's not so the like, end. Your, like, but your analogy, those are your beginning workouts, right? Yes. And everyone has to go through that. You have to do your beginning workouts for sure. So that's cool. But you, you wouldn't do that same workout for like the rest of your life. No. You have to like eventually put on more weight than just those five pounds. Yeah, exactly. Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> You're just, I did these five pounds. What that's the hell's right. happening? I've been yeah. doing these five pounds for the last four years. Right. Yeah. You might have to put a little more weight on the bar. That's it. <laughs> but that's you it. still have to learn how to do the five pounds first. Correct. Fundamentals. Yeah, you can't do like 100 push-ups if you can't do five. That's right. You got to start with five, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, okay, on the deeper unconscious thing connecting to magic, I guess when we do our meditation episodes, then the whole idea is that I, I don't know if there's any tradition that doesn't say that you have to connect into that deeper part. How you do it, like exactly how it works and all that can probably vary. Mm. But you, you got to connect into this deeper part of yourself. And whatever you want to call that, if you want to call that like Buddha nature, if you want to call that your Yuan Shen, sometimes in China, they'll talk about your original spirit, your Yuan Shen. Or just your yeah. spirit, period, you know? Spirit. I like, to, I like, the, I like the, the original part. I like it. But if you don't like it, you can drop it. <laughs> right. But whatever it is, you know, you can call it, you can talk about your soul. You know, mm -hmm. you can call it whatever you want. You know, you have to connect to this deeper part of who you are. And then, like, different things will happen, uh, you know, beyond that. But, uh, you know, that's what's being talked about. And there probably is a certain kind of stillness in that experience and, you know, and different ways of getting to that place. Mm -hmm. The other implication of this, when we're thinking about the meaning behind this and how to talk about this with people, we wanted to give a shout out back to our episode on the default mode network. Yeah. One of your favorite subjects, man, your uh, subjects, uh, Daniel, you love that subject so much. And it's an important one. So I know maybe you should define this default uh, mode network for people a little bit. Yeah. So I, I just read, I, we just kind of re-released that episode. Um, at this point, it'll be within the last like week. And I went ahead and, and redid it intro 
for it just a few minutes giving kind of like a more technical definition so you could check oh, that cool. out again okay. yeah yeah and you know kind of like the what the interesting part about the default mode network is that it's a you know combination of various aspects of the brain that that work together um but the interesting part about it is that like they have found increased default mode network activity in people who have depression schizophrenia anxiety and what that means what the default network why i start with that to, to say the default mode network is more active when you're at rest okay so when you are doing a task focused on something whatever it is the default mode network actually is it, the activity is decreased right because your brain is focusing on something some parts moving and some part is not being moved however when the external stimulus decreases right and the energies are sent back to the center you're not doing anything you're kind of daydreaming or whatever right just staring off into space doing whatever that's when the default node network increases in its activity level and so they have shown now which is why i gave that definition in the beginning they have shown that people who have increased activity levels in their default mode network have again higher anxiety higher depression higher levels of schizophrenia it's because the resting state someone's brain resting state or quote unquote resting state is far more active and stimulating to one's mind when you're not doing anything else so essentially the person who is trying to avoid a rest state a mental rest state the state of your default mode network has to constantly be active right you have to always be focused on something always be doing something and so we think about all of our busybodies in our families right and people who would like if they could just get a job they would probably stop doing x y or z addiction that they have because they're busy at that point and we brought it up in the in the psychedelic episodes because when you are on psychedelics for most people your physical um acumen decreases greatly your mind kind of shuts down and it actually is forced to move back into that default mode network and so that's where all of the kind of like stuff happens and you have to sort of work through this and meditation is directly linked to the i won't say control but i'll say influence of the default mode network because you're only really focusing on one or two things even if you're doing some kind of crazy visualization you're still only visualizing it's not like you're moving around and wondering what you're doing tomorrow you sort of let all those things go and now you're here with yourself sitting in those in those states working with essentially the energies that are very inherent to you and working through them is like you said previously kind of getting through those initial layers of clutter you know and trying so to probably unite the, this default mode network is a kind of a clutter producer or something like that, right? Yes. Yes. So this has like lots of trippy implications. Or clutter collector, maybe even. You know, like in, uh, in when we do our Zen episodes, we'll talk about it more, but there's this thing in Zen that they sometimes will talk about active and absolute samadhi. Mm. Samadhi is when you kind of get into the zone, right? You're in the meditative zone. So, you know, uh, your active samadhi is if you're really concentrating on something and the Zen I was doing, you might be concentrating on, you know, doing a sword form or something because there's some martial arts in that, you know, but, you know, you could be doing a martial art, you could be playing some music, you could be doing some art, you could be really focused on whatever it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then what you're saying is that the fault mode network will kind of like turn down. Yes. And in Zen, they're saying that you use those concentrated moments of activity to get out of your default mode network. So yes. you can see your reality outside the default mode network. The same way may, you might want to see your 
reality outside your default med node network if you're doing some acid or if you're doing some mushrooms. I got a text from somebody who was saying that we should do some mushrooms together. Uh, <laughs> I never done them. So I was like, okay, I never done them, but I'll, I'll give it a talk. So, you know, uh, you know, that kind of a thing, you know, you're, you're, you're putting, you're putting your mind in a different space. And then, but also at the same time, you know, if you're meditating really strongly on like trying to visualize a mandala, you're, you're doing something that's an active samadhi, right? And when you're doing that, you're training your mind outside the default mode network, or maybe you're retraining the default mode network, fingers crossed. Yes. Yeah. And then every once in a while you go to this other place where you're, you're concentrating on the deepest parts of who you are. You know, and then that's outside the default mode network too. So, I mean, that has all kinds of interesting implications for me just from like a meditative point of view too. You know, all the different ways that meditation might be trying to get around this, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that occurs to me too, Daniel, and I don't know what you think about this. This might be warranting of further research on both of our parts. Mm. Uh, another guest we want to have on ultimately, fingers crossed, is Christopher Ryan, who wrote uh, Sex at Dawn but also wrote- um, Very good time for that, by the way. <laughs> Tantra, when isn't that a good time? But they do say Sex at Dawn is pretty good in Tantra, that's true. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there might be some special things happening in the dawn. But then again, there might be special things happening at midnight. <laughs> uh, he's also the author of Civilized to Death. So Christopher Ryan wrote Sex at Dawn. He also wrote Civilized to Death. And in that book, he brings up this really interesting point. You're talking about uh, uh, default mode network stuff in mental illness and how the default mode network becomes more active in these conditions of like mental illness, like anxiety, depression, maybe even schizophrenia. So he points out this really bizarre and interesting thing. He says in other cultures, external influences, to use your phrase, right? Um, in those cultures, schizophrenia doesn't necessarily produce these horrific, nightmarish, paranoid visions. Mm. He says in other cultures, now I haven't totally fact-checked him on this, yeah, but he's a reliable source. He's an academic dude. So I, I, I think he has his T's crossed and his I's dotted. Um, but in any case, what he really says is that you look at other cultures and a lot of times people who would probably be diagnosed schizophrenia when they have their, their hallucinations and visions and things, they're like really kind of nice. They see Sarasvati appearing and they have a conversation or it's not this nightmarish thing. Which raises an interesting question, culturally speaking, is the fault mode network in cultures different? And in a culture like this one, is it all crammed through with anxiety and fear and depression and, you know, paranoid thoughts, you know, in a way that can become really bad in severe mental illness? I mean, it's kind of a hell of a question, you know. Have you thought about that one at all, Daniel? Or have you seen anything about that? No, I mean, they, at least in Chinese medicine, the the... the records go back pretty far so we have some pretty long references of kind of mental you know psycho-emotional stuff they'll call it that mm -hmm. goes back quite a long time but i think the specificity in which they label them may not always exactly line up with what we're seeing in the dsm you know like the, the, the that level of specificity so they'll just say mania well that mania can be a lot actually you know and i'm sure it's you know schizophrenic as I've seen, you know, and in, in a high state is definitely manic for sure. But that's not that's not the only state that they're in. There's a, a wide range of experiences. So, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't have a that's a hell of a question. When you bring up the Chinese medical aspect of it, it is true because you can go back in Chinese culture for a long time and find all kinds of people feeling all kinds of bad stuff that they're yes. talking about. Yes. Yeah. So I guess it's it's an interesting thing. I I the reason I throw it out 
is as, as an idea is that there might be cultural influence into the fault mode network that might make it better or worse in some cultural setting than another. Does that mm. make sense to you? It's possible, yeah, that the cultural influences would have some effect on our re uh, mental resting state and thereby affect the propensity for being more or less mentally disturbed for those folks who are have more of an attitude for that. And I mean, we could be honest about it. Is Chinese culture always like super awesome going back thousands of years? No. No. Chinese culture a lot of times is really effed up, you know, going all the way back to like the warring states period and probably before that. So maybe there's a culture that produces a ton of anxiety and all that in people too. There's something that says the Chinese culture isn't screwed up somehow, you know, or a lot of the cultures you would talk about. But I mean, the key was probably, I think, trying to go to cultures that might even be sort of traditional in a way beyond even those very old cultures. Anyways, it's something to throw out. The default mode network might be sensitive to these kinds of cultural things. And maybe it's something where when you're, it's, when you're addressing your default mode network, you're also trying to rewrite your cultural myth, which is one of our favorite GNT uh, themes, right? Mm. Can you rewrite your cultural story? So I thought I'd throw it out there. Um, all right. So that, that's our default mode network. Do you got anything else you want to say about that as we close out the, the DMN part of it? No, I feel like I, I feel like no, I feel like we did a we did we did a decent job not being uh, neuroscientists, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So last like uh, thing uh, off of the Dr. Raiden, you know, interview that we wanted to talk about was the meditation different strokes for different folks question. So this really kind of hit me in the interview with him. This wasn't something that was you know a, a plan in the interview for us at all to talk about this set of issues which is something that he brought up. He specifically talked about meditations that he wasn't into. It just came up in the context of the show. So, um, you know, it fits into our idea of like doing a little mini series on meditation, you know, that we're going to follow up with. But basically we're doing the interview with Dr. Raiden and this Buddhist technique of meditation that has a certain amount of research behind it. I just kind of brought it up you know, just in the flow of the conversation. And it's a thing called uh, Tonglen. And we'll describe it a little bit more as we go along. But the, the basic idea is that you imagine yourself sort of breathing in all the troubles of the world, you purify them in your center of your chest, you make that seem very clean and pure. And then you like, breathe out that purified version back out into the world. That's the basic gist of the meditation. Now there's an alternate nostril breathing technique that we can go into a little bit more detail as we go, where you breathe in one nostril for a while, you purify, and then you breathe out, then you breathe in the other nostril, you purify and you breathe out, and then you breathe in with both nostrils, you purify and you breathe out. Very typical Tibetan Buddhist meditation too. So if you listen to like the Dalai Lama, he'll give this as sort of a basic thing that you might do at the beginning almost of every meditation session. I think so. Yeah, and it has a very interesting effect and we can talk about some of the positives with is this as we go. But, you know, doc, and there's been research on it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as far as the research of like what meditation techniques seem to produce more subjective feelings of happiness in the aftermath of people doing them, this is one of the ones that has like come across, you know, very well in scientific studies of this. It makes a big change on people's subjective experience of their, their moods, their emotions, their world, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. you look at the question of like, how much, how much happier does meditation make people right in general? And, you know, they've looked at this with mindfulness and it does make people a certain percentage just happier in their life, right? Takes away the negative emotions, the anxieties that people feel it's good, you know? Uh, you know, just your general mindfulness, you know, like we were talking about earlier with uh, JKZ. 
but you know um this buddhist technique doing these visualizations doing this thing you know produces a bigger change apparently in people's mood it actually does make you happier than just doing a mindfulness thing though it involves a little bit more visualization and it's you know uh, there's more there's more to it but dr rain's like so he was familiar with that research but then he also kind of um, uh, said some of something very personal. And he said a few very personal things of the course of the episode, which I thought was really awesome. He was willing yeah. to share, you know, he was, a, he's an open guy and, you know, he shared his feelings and thoughts and experiences with things. And what he really was saying was that this just doesn't work for him. The whole idea of like taking in kind of the negativity of the world around and, you know, all that is just kind of like, I know, how would you describe his experience of that? But he just thought that's just overwhelming for him. It's overwhelming for something him. that he would even want to have to visualize. Yeah, you know? he has, yeah, he made mention that he has enough of his own anxieties already, you know, <laughs> and that taking that on would, would, would seem as if it were too much. And he went actually really deep. He said he was talking about almost having like memories from when he was like really, really tiny. Yes. You know? And so he shared this very personal kind of experience of sensitivity, essentially, mm -hmm. right? And so he mm -hmm. almost felt himself to be such a sensitive uh, person that the idea of taking in all of this sort of a baggage of the universe visualization would just feel like, uh, you know, kind of emotionally jarring for him in some ways. Yes. Yeah. Now, if we're going to do an episode on it or not, I have another person who's like exposed me to this idea of this thing called the highly sensitive person. Do you know this concept, Daniel? I've never heard of this. Okay. So uh, in HSP or a highly sensitive person, the whole oh, thing is that they name. have these, All right. yeah, this very sort of sensitive nervous system. There's a lot of psych theory around it. It's a little bit outside the box. I never learned about it as a psych student, but it now, is kind of interesting. Highly sensitive in what way? That they're very, um, they're more emotionally sensitive. You know, that's one side of it. Their emotions are more salient. So they're more emotional people, but they're also more, affected by smaller changes in the external environment. So almost the concept seems to be that their nervous systems are very sensitized, mm. both emotionally. So that's one side of being sensitive, right? Mm -hmm. But also like things in the environment will be something that will be um, bothering to them too, mm. you know, noises and, you know, distractions in the environment. So they're just kind of highly tuned. Yeah. They have like 14 questions that you could ask yourself about this. Maybe we'll do an episode of it at some point. You know, I, I got interested just because somebody was bringing it up. And I was like, I never heard that concept before. No, I've never heard of it. it so I, I was like, okay, I, let me look into it. So it seems like it could be used to like, in a negative way, almost. Yeah, I mean, I think like I listened to, I got, I don't have time to read the book, but I was listening to an audio book by one of the people who were inventors of the concept from a psych point of view. Okay. And they were kind of acknowledging that, you know, you wouldn't want to label people, you know, and you don't, you never really want to label people, right? No. And you don't want to label people as like, well, you're just sensitive. And so therefore that's how you are or something like that. Right. right. But there was this idea of people who are more sensitized to their environment this way. And when Dr. Radin was talking that way, I was like, huh, maybe he just has this heightened sensitivity to things around them. I like you know? to call them refined. There is an element of refinement mentioned, Daniel, now that you mentioned it, mm. right? They like, mm. like the the aroma of a good vintage of wine. Oh, so they, these mean are more to them. <laughs> so sommelier people yes. are highly Ep sensitive. Epicureans in the sense that they like beautiful things and, you know, beautiful music and high art. Another, uh, another big word, equestrians also. 
it could be it does <laughs> horses yes <laughs> they might feel i need a draw to, towards I, horses i needed to use another fancy word you know <laughs> running out uh, actually we're watching sea biscuit with my kids there's oh. one of the characters who's like a highly sensitive equestrian see there you go <laughs> he's a horse whisperer in the oh. story yeah everything comes around goes around and there's just GNT universe that we're creating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, it, it occurred to me, you know, just okay. He probably has a heightened level of sensitivity, Doctor Ray. Mm, yeah. And that would really the reason I bring it up is that you know that does mean different strokes for different folks. Correct. So if that meditation for him is, you know, overwhelming, you know, then you know that's not just not right for him. You know, no matter what the research says, the research might say it's the most awesome thing in the universe for everybody, but not for him. (laughs) Well, and it's okay. That's the issue. That that means it can't be for everybody. A lot of times people will look at meditations. I'll say, oh, it's a light quote unquote, a life hack, you know, but like not everybody has the same life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Not everybody needs the same. uh, Not everybody has the same password to hack into. Correct. Yeah. So it just occurred to me like, okay, so he has this highly sensitized thing, but I did want to talk about the meditation a little bit too, because it, it raises this kind of an interesting set of questions about this. So I thought we'd do a little bit on the Tonglen, because it is a powerful meditation. We want to start talking about meditations that has research behind it. Doesn't mean it's for everybody, you know, but um, you know, there it is. So I thought we'd just do a little bit on it. So basically the technique goes, and again, it's a visualization technique. Uh, in lots of Tibetan Buddhism, you do visualization in this way. Okay, so in true Jin and Tantra spirituality with a twist style, Daniel and I went off mic. We uh, were the two cooks who went back to the to the kitchen. <laughs> and we basically decided, you know what, we're going to save this dish for later on, right? We were going to save this cocktail for another episode of the show. Um, we were going to talk about the Tong Lang because uh, it came up in our interview with Dr. Raiden, but it's a long subject matter and we want to do it full justice. We also want to talk about variations on this practice, a very interesting kind of shamanic one called the Chud, which is where you offer up your own body to the demons. How's that for a a teaser? (laughs) So we decided to save that and that will be part of our meditation series. So I'll bring the salt. (laughs) (laughs) I'll bring the uh, sriracha. That's right. (laughs) Spice me up, baby. (laughs) Probably for these hellbound demons that will taste like nothing to them. That's right. A little bit of spice will do nothing. Um, uh, from their helly realms. You know, so I guess we'll, we'll kick it around next time. It'll be part of an interesting way to start talking about our meditation thing. It's a little bit little bit of a shout out still to Dr. Raiden, but uh, that'll be our next episode. And really what that means for the most part, we've ended with our, our follow-up to the Dr. Raiden interview series. Uh, so I thought the right way to end it, we both agree, would just be to say one more thank you and shout out to Dr. Raiden. Thanks so much for coming on. Definitely. You know, for all of his great research and work, uh, for being such an open and sharing person about his research and its implications both professionally and personally. Just, you know, a, a deep bow, a gosh show of gratitude. Thank you so much, Dr. Dr. Raiden. Thank you and so much. Next thank time we'll, you. Take, we'll continue our meditation thing. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Eric, as always, thank you so much for, for doing this well, with Daniel. me. Definitely appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate our audience, uh, whether you are whatever side of the spectrum, whatever side of the political aisle, whatever side of the world, you know, um, it's all good. We definitely appreciate everybody's influence on us. Send it, you know, shouting us out on all the different social medias, sending us emails at gin and tantra at gmail.com. We definitely appreciate that. You can find us on Instagram at gin and tantra. We have a YouTube page, the gin and tantra podcast. Um, you know, we just appreciate the feedback and definitely appreciate people listening, most importantly. 
Uh, as we're doing this, we're learning, right? We're getting it to teach, but we're getting to learn. I know Robert Thurman says, you know, in this lifetime, I'm a teacher, but it's only because I can't remember anything. So I have to keep hearing myself say the same thing over and over again. So uh, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be able to, to, you know, be here, take the time out every week to do this and to, to really be steeped in it on, on a regular basis. So um, I, I hope that everybody finds this stuff useful. And even if you don't find it useful, go ahead and share it anyways. You know, piss somebody off. Share, share how crappy it is. Yeah, be like, dude, these guys <laughs> suck, bro. Like, for real. Here, listen to how dumb they are. Like, that's fine. I don't, that doesn't bother me at all. You know, <laughs> really, uh, I really appreciate it. So, uh, I did yeah. a long time, doesn't bother our default networks anymore. No, no, we're, we're all, we're already bothered. So, you know, this is not going to hurt us at all. Um, anyways, uh, I wish everybody well for Eric. This is Daniel. Thanks for tuning in to Gin and Tantra. We'll catch you the next one. Peace. I want you to get together. I want you to get together. I want you to get together. I want you to get together.